the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Uh, usually the show is about estate planning and elder law, at least the first part of the show. But tonight we're going to make a detour. We're going to be talking to one of the most remarkable people in New York State right now, age of 90, former state senator, Serfin Maltese. He was a Korean War vet. He was, you know, one of the founding members of the Conservative Party. He spent 20 years in the New York State Senate. And he's devoted his life to not-for-profits, particularly Christ the King High School in Queens. And so we're going to go through his life story. And what precipitated this, about two weeks ago, Surf Maltese was honored by the Kings County Conservative Party. And I have to congratulate the chairperson, Fran Vela Marone, for making an excellent choice. So here we're going to go, and we're going to start the show talking to Surf. And his family was involved in, in extreme tragedy when they first came over here to the United States. But again, Surf Maltese, former U.S. Uh, former state senator for 20 years, in New York State. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi. This is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. 
Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, last week, there was a particularly nice program by the Conservative Party of of Kings County where they honored our next guest, the Honorable Surf and Maltese. Welcome to the show, Surf. Well, thank you very much, Mike. I'm very, very glad to be here. I spoke to you uh, at that event, and I was very pleased and happy to see so many enthusiastic people. Yeah, and you know what? It's it's kind of interesting, you know, over the years. But I guess this was always so. In the Conservative Party, there were a lot of immigrants in the room. And I'm, I'm talking about first generation. Oh, yeah, no question. I think, I think it's the new party of the legitimate I- immigrants, the immigrants that have come to America as, as a promised land, just like my father and my grandfather and, and my, my ancestors. Yeah, well, you know, speaking about your ancestors, you know, there was a memorial put up for the, tri- the victims of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. And obviously that touched your family, but the audience may know that. Can you give a little bit of the history of, of that fire? Yes. Well, uh, on March 25th, 1911, a building in uh, Washington Square caught fire. It was a, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, <clears throat> and approximately 500 mostly immigrants worked there. The predominant uh, group were Jewish young women, and the second group were Italian young women. And a fire broke out, they believe, it broke out in the scraps of the material for the shirtwaists, and they believe it might have been a discarded cigarette. And within 15 minutes, the factory, the eighth floor, the factory took three floors, the eighth, ninth, and tenth, 
on the eighth and ninth floor, they were workers working uh, in sewing machines connected together. And on the 10th floor, they had the executive offices of the Triangle Factory. And the fire broke out at uh, 4.40. And within less than 20 minutes, the blaze had to consume the 8th and 9th floor, part of the 10th floor. And w uh, before the fire and its aftermath that day, 146 people perished, 123 women and 23 men. And among those women was my grandmother, Katharina, at the age of 38, my aunt, Lucia, at the age of 18, and my aunt, Rosaria, at the age of 14. They called her Sarah. There were two 14-year-olds that perished that day my aunt Rosaria, and a girl called Kate Leone. They were two of the only 14-year-olds that perished that day. But the youngest were 14, and the oldest were 43, Providenza Parno. So it was the deadliest industrial disaster until 9-11. Now, you know, can you tell the audience a little bit about the problems that happened, doors being locked, elevators, so forth? Well, the, the factory was run by two owners, Isaac Harris and Max Blank, and they practiced a rigorous anti-unionism, and they kept the doors locked for two reasons. Number one, the women and men had to undergo searches, and passage so that they wouldn't take any of the material. And it also kept that they kept the doors locked because they were fighting against the beginning of the unionization of workers and they wanted to keep the union organizers out of the building. But the fire laws, such as they were in those days, were not sufficient to protect the workers. One of the fire commissioners at the time, uh, Oswald, said after the fire, the building was fireproof, but the workers weren't. And they had doors that opened the wrong way. They had staircases that were blocked by pails of oil, machine oil, to lubricate the machines. They didn't have sufficient firefighting equipment. The hoses were old, and uh, as a result, and they had insufficient fire escapes. One of the fire escapes was in the building and did not go all the way to the ground floor, and that was ended up being one of the symbols of the fire, uh, a broken fire escape that uh, had broken under the weight of the people. And the two elevators, they had two elevators, and the elevators both broke down. They had two heroic elevator operators, Joe Zito and, uh, uh, and, and another elevator operator who was a hero. Both of them were heroes. And uh, Gasper Montalero, 
and they did at least three or four trips. The elevators were made for approximately 15 to 16 people, and they traveled down with women and as many as 35 and 40 people in a trip. And the last trip made by Joe Zito, the women's hair and clothes were fire, and the elevator crashed to the bottom and breaking Joe Zito's legs, but he survived the fire. And so as a result, you had black staircases, insufficient fire escapes, insufficient firefighting equipment, and then even when the firemen came, the these hoses at the time only reached to the sixth and maybe part of the seventh floor. And as I told you before, the a factory was on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floor. The majority of the ladies and men that were killed, that were lost, were lost on the 8th and 9th floor. The majority of the women who, who died were young women who leaped from the 8th and 9th floor the estimate was that over 50 of the victims had jumped out of the windows, and the, the uh, nets at the time were insufficient and unable to take anybody who would jump from that high, and they were, the, the poor girls would go through the net and into the sidewalk below in many cases, breaking the sidewalk that was because of the force of their bodies. Now, I mean, you mentioned the fact that your, your grandmother and her two daughters passed away. Now, who was left in your family alive at that time? Well, my, my grandfather, Serafino, I was named after him, as is obvious. He landed at at Ellis Island in May of 1906 from uh, Sicily, Marsala. And uh, he stayed here approximately a year, as many immigrants did at the time. It was an 18-day trip. He departed Palermo at, on May 1st and arrived on May 19th. And he did what many immigrants did after being here a short time. He had been a bootmaker but he had a, an education at that time, which was unusual, un, un, uh, usually not the norm. And he sent for his family, his wife, Katharina, and his five children, his two daughters, Lucia and Rosaria, his baby daughter, Maria, and his two sons, my uncle Vito and my dad, Paul. At the time they arrived, Vito was 14, and my dad, Paul, was 2. So how old, how old was your dad then when his, his mother passed? Well, my dad was 2 at the time he arrived, and when the fire occurred, which was three and a half years later, he was 6. And my, he was com my grandfather was confronted with tragedy as soon as they arrived in America. His youngest daughter, Maria, who was four, 
had gotten sick on the boat coming over, and she was taken to Ellis Island Hospital on May 19th. Uh, I'm sorry, on, uh, uh, on, on May 19th. And she passed, she, they, they landed, I'm sorry, it was on May 19th. It was August 2nd she arrived. She arrived at, at Ellis Island Hospital, and she died the following day at Ellis Island Hospital. So here's this poor guy, brings his family over from Italy, brings his entire family over, and on August 2nd loses his youngest daughter, Maria, in Ellis Island Hospital, and then four years, three and a half years later, loses his wife and two other daughters. Uh, terrible tragedy. I mean, I, the devastation, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. How did he carry on? Do you have any family stories or anecdotes? Yes. Well, my grandmother, of course, and my two aunts perished then. And I was born in 1932, so I never knew them. But I knew my grandfather very well. He didn't die until 1945 when I was 13. And he had a shoe store opposite where our apartment was on 3rd Street between 1st and 2nd Avenue. So I got to know him very well because we did what all kids at the Lower East Side did. We played in the streets. And my grandfather would always be a soft touch. When my brother Vinny and I would be playing out in the street, he had turned his shoe store into a clubhouse for mainly for Italian men. And he had, uh, he no longer did shoe repair, but when people would come with, to, with their shoes to be repaired, he would send them to another shoe store close by. And my store was the local clubhouse for not only old Italian men, but also it was the local Democratic clubhouse. And, but we kids would be playing stickball in the street, and we would go over to him and say, Nona Zadavino, Nona Zadavino, we're very thirsty. And because he had a restaurant, which was not, not a full restaurant, but just so that the Italian men, who, when they would be playing cards, would eat chichi beans and and had wine. There was a wine vat in the basement, uh, a very big wine vat. It was built in the basement. It had it was nine feet in diameter. And anyway, he had an Italian sodas. It was Manhattan Special and Manhattan Gasosa, and all the our fellow stickball players would get free sodas from Nona Zaravino. You know, you just brought up a memory to me. Have you seen Have you seen anybody play stickball in the last 30, 40 years? Unfortunately, no. Yeah. It's one of those <laughs> things. I, I guess, do they even make stickball bats anymore? Yeah, they don't. Well, in most cases, it was a broomstick that was remade into a stickball bat. Yeah. So, let My me grandfather, by the way, was a very religious man. And in his shoe store... He had a candle lit at all times with my uh, aunt's picture and his wife's, Katharina's picture, and he would say a prayer in front of that candle, and he kept it lit all the time. 
you know, it, it may sound funny nowadays, but my grandfather was a very saintly man. I never in my entire youth ever heard him curse, and he was just a, a saintly man. I don't say that because he's long gone, but I say that because it was the truth. And I think he was just the type of man that mourned his family for the rest of his life. And how old would his... How old was he when he passed away? Uh, well, I, uh, 1945. 45, I yeah. believe he was 80. I'm not sure about that. I believe he was 80. So that's a long life for, you know, back 1940s. Yes, I, I think it was 85. And I think it was 85, yes. Now, when we, you were talking at the Conservative Party last week, you mentioned the fact that uh, originally you were a Democrat. I didn't know that. And, of course, you oh, said yeah, your, your yeah. grandfather was I, part of the Democratic Club. How did, how you, did know, you start to get involved with the Conservative Party? Well, <laughs> first of all, I grew up in the Lower East Side, and until I went into the Marine Corps Reserve at about 16 and a half and then went into the Army about uh, when I was uh, 18, I never saw a Republican in the Lower East Side. Never even saw one. Didn't know them. And as I said, my grandfather's store was the local clubhouse. Most of the politicians were Jewish, and most of the residents were divided half, almost 50% Jewish and 50% Italian. Nowadays, with so many people... Uh, and we see the hatred of Hamas and people like them. We always got along, and I never remember any disagreements or any fights. Neighbors got along wonderfully. Most, the most common language was Yiddish, and the next most common language was Italian. And all the stores dealt with the immigrants in their own language. As a matter of fact, I worked for a couple of years from the age of about 15 on in a drugstore for two Jewish pharmacists, Sam Zalotskin and Armel Tomashoff. And I had to learn Yiddish because I used to take the cash register. I was essentially a stock boy, and I became a clerk, and I had to count in Yiddish. I still know how to do that. That's the only way the customers would let me give them change. So, you know, you mentioned anyway, the fact you were in the back to the politics of the day. I was a Democrat because, when I, as I said, when I went to the Marine Reserve and when I went into the Army, I wasn't 21. Don't forget, at that time... You didn't get enrolled into politics until you were 21, not 18. So I uh, even I went into the uh, into politics as a Democrat when I was 21. I registered to vote, and I was 21, and I was a registered Democrat until the formation of the Conservative Party in 1962, when. My wife and I were founders, co-founders, as was my brother Vinny and most of my family. And we registered conservative. And 
I remained a conservative until 1990 when I was already a senator. I became a state senator in 1988 as an enrolled conservative. I was one of the first office holders of the conservative party, and uh, I was very proud to take that role. I had been the state chairman. I had been the state director for more than 15 years, and I was uh, a county chairman. It's ironic that I later became the county chairman of the Republican Party for many years. Now, how many chairmen of the conservative party have there been in, in their history? Only, only five. The first one was Kieran O'Doherty, who was Van Mahoney's brother-in-law. He was chairman only for one year because we needed a candidate for lieutenant governor, and Kieran <coughs> became the candidate. Our second chairman was Dan Mahoney, who was the chairman for until from nineteen uh, from nineteen sixty three till nineteen uh, till nineteen eight till nineteen uh, I don't remember the year, but he became the state chairman. Oh, nineteen eighty six, because that was the year President Reagan named him as a, a, a federal judge, and I, I had been first vice chairman and executive director, and I was elected state chairman from 86 to 88 when I was elected state senator. And then Mike Long, when I, when I became a senator, I stepped down voluntarily, <clears throat> and my successor was Michael Long, who was my close friend, and vice chairman, and he remained state chairman for many, many years until Gerald Kassar. So those were the five. Kieran O'Doherty, Dan Mahoney, me, Mike Long, and Jerry Kassar. Yeah, now let, let me, let's go back a little bit. Now, you were in the, the Marine Corps Reserve and the U.S. Army? Yes, I, as a youngster, I was gung-ho. And I lied about my age. Copy machines were new at that time. And all you had to do was put your birth certificate. I, I know it is a statute of limitations, so it's all right. <laughs> yeah, I think you'll be forgiven. <laughs> I, and you would make alterations in your birth certificate. And it was funny because here was the Marine Reserve Unit in Brooklyn. And I would travel to Brooklyn. And we were all youngsters. I, I was the same height. I, I, I well, I'm even a little shorter now, but I was the same height. I was five ten and a half, so I got away with passing for eighteen at the time. But most of the youngsters in the unit were were sixteen and seventeen and eighteen. So when the Korean War broke out in nineteen fifty, June in nineteen fifty, we were all youngsters. And the unit was activated. I was in senior year at Stuyvesant High School, and they activated the entire unit. I had to repeat my second, my senior year, because they activated the unit. And finally, we were all kids. So when they came to uh, examine the unit and look about activating the unit, because they were desperate 
at that time, the Marine Corps was only 176,000 strong in the entire nation. And they saw all these baby-faced kids. So the ones they sent to Korea were all our officers who had sanctioned and permitted all these kids. And we were deferred. And we finally were deferred for so long that many of us got impatient. And I went to my congressman, Arthur G. Klein in Lower Manhattan, and he said, you mean you want to go in, not stay out? And I said, I told him my story. I had gone out with his niece. Uh, he lived on Third Street, too. And at any rate, I told him my story. So it's one of my early experiences with the power of elected officials, because I had been waiting from June of 50 to January of, of 52 to be activated. <clears throat> he gave me a sheet of paper with his name and a, a letter. I went to downtown Broadway, and I said, oh, they told, they asked me, are you the young man that Congressman Klein sent? And I said, yes. And I had gone on lunch hour because I was working for Western Electric in downtown Manhattan. And he, they said, go into that room. I went into the room. They asked me to raise my right hand, and they swore me in after waiting all that time to the United States Army. And they, I went outside, and I got on a bus for Camp Kilmer, New Jersey. And I was living at home, and I call, called my mother, and I said, Mom, you'll never believe it, but I'm in the Army. And she was crying because the war was on. And at any rate, I went to Camp Kilmer. Then I went to Fort Dix for basic training. I was gung-ho all during basic training. I was a squad leader. And they said, they told me because of my prior experience as a Marine Corps reservist that I would probably never go to Korea. So Christmas, they sent me home on leave. And while I was home I, on Christmas leave, I got orders for Korea. So I ended up going to Korea and I had been in in in, uh, in anti-tank training in, uh, in Texas, Fort Hood, Texas. They had something called an MOS, Military Occupational Serial Number. So after 16 weeks of basic as a tanker, I arrived in Korea and they needed men in the infantry. So they said, your MOS is now 1745 infantrymen, and I went to the 45th Infantry Division, which was stationed at Chuncheon, Korea, and that was my military career from then on. All right, well, how long were you over there in Korea? Uh, oh, more than a year, a year and a half. And uh, we were in a combat unit, but I didn't see, other than the war was, was almost over at that time. And as a matter of fact, they, the truce was on by then, so things were not hard. And uh, and then I came home in in January of uh, January of '53. Okay, now, that's that's right. Jan I was in the service from January 
51 to January of 53. So then where, where, where were you educationally? Graduated from high school? Yes. It was senior year in high school that the war broke out. And I had to repeat senior year because our unit was activated. But I was in Stuyvesant, which was, you know, uh, one of the specialized schools. I had gone. It's funny because here I am, chairman of the board for 47 years of a Catholic high school. And I never went to a Catholic school until college. I went to PS 63 on 3rd Street, Junior High School 64, a disciplinary school, by the way, because it was my neighborhood school on 9th Street and Avenue B. And from there, I was the only junior high school 64 student to make Stuyvesant High School, which was on 15th Street and 1st Avenue. And I went from Stuyvesant High School to the Marines, to the Army. And then when I came home in 1954, I met my wife Constance in 54, and I... I, I went to Manhattan College, which was a Christian Brothers College, and I want to put in a plug for Manhattan College, a wonderful school. I was in an auto accident in the first year, in the senior year, and Manhattan College not only canceled my student loan for the car that was wrecked in the accident. I wasn't driving. I was a passenger. I broke both legs, fractured my skull, fractured my ribs. I was a mess, and yet the Christian brother. I was in the Veterans Hospital on First Avenue and Twenty Third Street, and the Christian Brothers came by public transportation from Two Hundred and Forty Second Street in the Bronx to Twenty Third Street to give me my lessons twice a week, wow. and they gave me my tests. And as a result, I was able to graduate in June of '54 on crutches, but I was able to graduate. And I originally wanted to be a teacher, so it's ironic I ended up as chairman of the board. But they made it, I figured that I, I would be laid up on crutches for a while, but I ended up recovering more quickly. And as a result, I went to law school instead of pursuing a master's degree. And I went to Fordham Law School. All right, so... When you graduated from Fordham, what was your next step? My next step was I was uh, an, an attorney. I had been working for Royal Gold all during in, uh, the uh, law school, and I was active in everything. I was inactive in the formation of the Conservative Party in 62. I was... Uh, I, my first races I got involved in was I got involved as a conservative Democrat and in Queens County. And I became a, uh, I was active. I knew the chairman of the uh, uh, Law Association, the Queens County Bar Association. His name was Nat Hentel. And he became the district attorney. And to show you how people got along in those days, on the same day he swore me in, I was the chairman of the Queen's Conservative Party, and he swore in the chairman of the Queen's Liberal Party, Steve Marla, who's still around and live in Queens and practicing law. And he swore in the both of us on the same day as assistant DAs, 
and then assigned both of us to the same bureau, the Homicide Bureau, and I became the deputy chief of the Homicide Bureau under a, an import from New York County, James Mosley. And Steve and I ended up bringing in the first first-degree murder conviction in 10 years in Queens County, uh, a, a defendant called Max Danziger, who had shot and killed a former city controller, wow. and uh, Morty Steinler, and we brought in a first-degree murder conviction against her. Those were busy, busy years for the DA's office. Uh, we, 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 we tried a lot of cases, and I ended up leaving because uh, homicide had a rule that, if possible, the trying lawyer, the trying assistant DA, would have to go to the autopsies. And th that final year, I ended up having seven child homicides. And I had two children of my own, and they were very trying. That, those were the years of, of Alice Crimmins and uh, Nelson and people like that that were big publicity at the time. And I didn't... I. I just didn't like bringing my work home, so I went to work for Royal Globe, and I uh, was a trial lawyer, and then Michigan Mutual, and then uh, when Nat Hanthel appointed us assistant DAs, uh, Steve and I were assistant DAs for three and a half years, and then he went into defense work. I mo opened an office in Ridgewood, Queens and went into general practice and politics. Huh. I was the uh, counsel for the first conservative assemblywoman, Rosemary R. Gunning, and I was counsel to the uh, endorsed state senator, Marty Noah, who I succeeded in. And I was counsel to U.S. Senator James Buckley and U.S. Senator Al D'Amato. And in 1988, I was elected state senator and served in that position for 20 years. Now, we touched upon this, but how have things changed in politics since, let's say, when you were first elected till the present day? Well, it, it, to be honest, Mike, it was a real pleasure. All the senators would argue on the floor and then all go to the same card games and the same bars and the same hotels and all mixed together. My, one of my closest friends just recently passed away, Franz Leichter. He was the assembly representing Greenwich Village. Need I say more? And yet we were the closest friends right up until the time he passed away. It's a different world now. It's a very mean world, by and large. All, all my, my, my friends, most of my friends were Democrats because my district was three and a half to one Democrat. And yet I managed to pull it off because I was a strong right to lifer. And I was, uh, to be honest, a very, very conservative conservative and conservative Republican. And the death penalty... I had run for Congress in 1974. One of our former classmates, uh, my, my, one of my, you know, one of my close friends even now 
is Gail Giordano. She's the aunt to my children. At the time in law school, out of a class of 150 class in law school, freshman class, there was 146 men and four women. One of the women was Gail Giordano. One of the women was Vivian Warehouser of the Warehouser uh, Millionaires. And the other one was Jerry Ferrara, who was a good close friend right up until the time she passed away. But Mundell picked her as a vice presidential candidate, leaving open a congressional seat. Tom Manton became the Democratic candidate, and I ran against them. And to show you how things are different, we were two of the foremost advocates of the death penalty. So I was running against a city councilman who was pro-death penalty and in the and uh, uh, an organization Democrat. And he, it was a close race, but he beat me, and it laid the groundwork for me to later run for state senate and win. And I ended up being endorsed for Congress by uh, one president, uh, Ronald Reagan, and when I ran for state senate, George Bush came into Christ King High School and endorsed me. Now, you, you've mentioned Christ the King High School. Can you tell us, how did you get involved in Christ the King High School, and what is Christ the King High School? Christ the King High School is an independent Catholic high school. I got involved because in 1975, I, I mentioned before, I had been ch chairman of the school for 40, I have now been chairman of the school for 47 years. When you don't get paid, they never fire you. <laughs> and a voluntary, non-paid position. My older daughter, Andrea, was a student at Christ the King, and my younger daughter, Leslie, was uh, uh, com com coming in as a freshman. And... Uh, the, they, I was Rosemary Gunning's assistant, so I went with her to the meeting, and I thought it would just be a regular meeting. But instead, the diocese, it was a diocese school, and the entire diocese was on strike. And the uh, uh, union was striking, and the, the diocese had decided, since they this was the second or third strike they had, to close the school. They were going to let the seniors graduate, and everybody else had been given a transfer slip. So I went to the meeting that was held in the cafeteria with my wife, and we went, and they, the cafeteria held about close to 2,000 parents who were panicking because their children were told Christ the King was closing. And I was the counsel to Rosemary Gunning, and everybody was crying and waving the deeds to the houses and saying they were willing to help keep Christ the King open, but the diocese was adamant. And Rosemary Gunning said to me, Surf, you better try to restore order. And my wife, after a while, went outside, and when my wife came back, I was the chairman of the committee to save Christ the King. 
And from 1975 till 1976, we went to the hearings of the uh, the boards. And I don't forget now, I'm the assistant to Rosemary Gunning, the assemblywoman. I'm also the assistant to Senator Noah. I'm also close friend with the congressman from Long Island City, who is number four in the Congress for the United States. Jim Delaney, and I'm the associate of Jim Buckley, who had just gotten elected in 1970, and I was his election law counselor who got him an extra line on the machine. As a result, I participated in the negotiations between the union and the diocese. We ended up they were $55,000 apart, and I, on behalf of the school, pounded on the table and said, we will make up, the parents of Christ the King will make up the $55,000, which was $55,000 not only for Christ the King, but for four diocesan schools in Queens County. We went back we got our parents to approve it unanimously, and over the next five years, we raised $55,000. Some teachers donated the money. Some teachers refused the money. Some teachers uh, took the money and donated it to other groups, but we ended up giving approximately $175 each to every teacher in the union in Queens County. And we got them to come back. And we ended up, the diocese signed over the school to us committee for $1. Little did we know that the roof needed fixing for $300,000. They did not leave us a single penny in the treasury. And we took over the school and we had some bad years and eventually now we have a campus, and we are one of the most successful Catholic high schools, not only in New York State, but in the United States. We, uh, we have a campus. We have a daycare, Christ the King daycare, with close to 300 kids, thanks to Mayor Bloomberg, who convinced me to change it into a city daycare. We have a charter school, Middle Village Prep, which accompanied Christ the King to the Triangle Commemoration on October 11th. And we have thus a campus, which is a very successful campus, where Christ the King students mentor the charter school without the charge and mentor the daycare. And it's a part of Catholic education, independent Catholic education at Christ the King High School. And I, don't, I want to give credit. Over the years, I had vice chairman who was supposed to be my successor, Tom Agabeni, most prominent among them, and he passed away. Bernie Heldorfer, who was a law professor at St. John's University, who passed away. Bob Normandia, who was a pharmacist, and passed away when lately when I tried to ask 
Peter Manorino, one of my vice chairmen, to be a successor, he joked, not me, it's the kiss of death. And as a result, here I am at 90, the chairman of the board of Christ the King. Surf, we're run, we've run out of time, but, you know, I got to get Fran Vela back up here and congratulate her on making a great choice as the honoree at the Kings County Conservative Party dinner last week. Thank you You're for all you've done, you know, kind. for your country, Thanks. our state, our city. Thanks very much. It's, it's very much appreciated what you've done for all of us. Thank you, Mike, for all you do for the city and in your classes for young lawyers. All right, Surf, thank you. See you soon, I hope. Take care. Bye. Bye. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. But even though I'm kind of comfortable, I sometimes wonder, is there something more? Could God in church be what you're looking for? Come and see at catholicscomehome.com. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, they are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. 
Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer. Uh, again, I'm now accompanied by my wife, Beth, and my son, Michael. Hello, Hello everyone. So, you know, we've been very fortunate to know Surf Maltese, especially since we started our office in his home area of Middle Village, New York. And, you know, the, the man has accomplished so much and done so much good over the years. I'm, I'm very happy. I'm very glad that the New York Conservative Party, Kings County, honored him with the dinner, you know, last year. It was well-deserved. And, again, congratulations to a very good man. Gracious family, we love you, sir. Thanks so much for being here with us. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.